1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel according sorry concerning the glory of the blessed god which he entrusted to me what shapes your life you know if you had to give reasons for why you are like you are what you do what you say what would you say the great thing about having kids is you get to play with their toys okay and i used to love this thing that our daughter had a play-doh extruder it's like endlessly fascinating because you start with the same products, the same lump of Play-Doh, but its end form is determined by what shape you squidge it through. Intentionally shaping how it comes out. Well, today we begin Paul's first letter to Timothy, the series called Gospel Shaped, because this letter is all about being gospel shaped. That is, it's all about everything we are about as church and as individual Christians, being shaped by and driven by and motivated by our trust in Jesus and the good news, the gospel about him. So in this illustration, if we're a lump of Play-Doh, the shape we're gonna be extruded through together is gospel shaped. And throughout this letter, there are pithy little summaries of what the good news about Jesus is. And these gospel snippets, they're the heartbeat of the letter. So today's is verse five, and we'll get into that shortly. But overall, it's the good news about Jesus that drives and motivates and shapes what Paul asked Timothy to fight for. This letter is written by Paul. So formerly Christianity's enemy number one, now personally appointed by Jesus to be an apostle. So an apostle is someone who has personally witnessed Jesus and commissioned directly by Jesus 
to witness to the world the truth about him. So Paul's an apostle. And Paul's writing to Timothy, who is told to stay put in Ephesus, that's in modern day Turkey. So Timothy is Paul's closest, most trusted ministry partner. He describes him as his son in the faith. And he's asked him to stay behind in Ephesus so that uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, his purpose of the letter, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the, tr- the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the letter is addressed to Timothy, but it's also written to use, uh, plural you. So it's for both Timothy and the wider church to know what Jesus, speaking through his apostle, to know what Jesus says that we shall be, be about as a church. So that's your introduction to this letter. Today, we're thinking about gospel-shaped teaching. Gospel-shaped teaching. So here's where we're heading. Shaped by the gospel. um, Stop the false and fruitless gospel-shaped use of the law. So shaped by the gospel, we'll see the positive reason behind Timothy's negative-looking message. And then we'll see why it's a loving thing for Timothy to shut certain people up. And then we'll see how that Timothy is to correct misuse of the law, how Christians should be thinking about the law. First then, Timothy's task is shaped by the gospel. Wonder, have you ever been told to shut up for your own good or someone else's? You know, maybe you're talking about someone and they come into the room, or you start talking about something you've forgotten was supposed to be a surprise. I heard the story of a dad out shopping with his young son, bumping into a work colleague, and the boy says to his dad's colleague, do you work in a circus? Why do you think I work in the circus? Said the fella. Well, dad says he spends all day dealing with clowns. Paul's first job for Timothy is to get certain people to shut up. But this negative command is for really positive reasons. So we'll start with the positive, good motivation behind this command to help us see that far from being an intolerant grump, Paul's got the Ephesians' best interests at heart. So here's the key verse, the heartbeat of chapter 1, and if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Paul says, the goal of this command, to shut people up, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love. That's the goal of this seemingly negative task given to Timothy. Not soppy, only if it feels good kind of love, but selfless love of God and love of people. Loving your enemies as well as your neighbour. Loving those who battle against you. And this love is shaped by three things. A pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. So a pure heart. In the Bible, our hearts are, saying heart is kind of shorthand for the centre of our will and being. Shorthand for who we really are at our core. And left to ourselves, our hearts are stained, stained with sin, with our prideful rebellion against God. But a pure heart is what everyone trusting in Jesus has. 
That's a heart that's been made clean, washed by the blood of Jesus. By that I mean, when we put our trust in Jesus and his death on the cross, when we trust in him to pay the penalty for our sin, the stain on our hearts is washed away and replaced with Jesus' pure, sinless record. So our knowing Jesus' self-sacrificial love shown to us shapes that kind of love in our own hearts. It's a love that comes from a pure heart and from a good conscience. So your conscience is you've got to give an internal ability to know right from wrong and knowing that you should do the right thing. So you know that feeling, oh, well, I get it. Every time I see a police car, I think, oh no, they know about my late library book. Well, that's your conscience. So a good conscience is one that is informed by God's word in the Bible, one that's powered, powered up and sensitized by the Holy Spirit living in us. But one that is clear because we trust that Jesus has cleansed us from all the things we've done and all the things that we will do that trouble our conscience. So a good conscience shapes us in love for God and others because it means we don't have to go and do all the selfish and unloving things that people do to justify themselves and keep quiet their niggling conscience, their seared conscience. So a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Literally a without hypocrisy faith. So it's a faith that doesn't only sort of intellectually agree with a bunch of stated truths, beliefs. Well, it does include that. But a faith that trusts and relies on and depends on Jesus for real. The kind of faith that changes lives. A sincere faith placed exclusively in Jesus. Now you might worry sometimes, you think, sometimes I have doubts. Does that mean I'm not sincere? Well, no, working through doubts is part of how we are sincere. You know, believing in Jesus throws up all sorts of things that are hard to get our head around intellectually and emotionally. And it would be insincere to just ignore them, just as it will be insincere to just give up on Jesus because it's not all smooth sailing. Now, God gave you a brain and a personality to use in your sincere faith. If you have doubts, work through them. Get help from a more mature Christian. Ask me. Now, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. It's hypocrisy. It's double-mindedness. It's trying to have your cake and eat it. Trusting in Jesus when he suits you. Trusting in yourself when he doesn't. And having a sincere faith shapes us in love because we aren't proud of earning our own way to God so we don't look down on others. And we aren't insecure in our own failings because we trust that Jesus has dealt with them and so we're not left using people, using people or lashing out at them to make us feel better about ourselves in our insecurity. You see, the gospel 
the good news about Jesus isn't a dead, dry message. It's a living, life-giving message that brings us into personal relationship with God through Jesus. It's a message that grows us in love. Love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the kind of love the Ephesian church needed. That's the kind of love we need. And that's the kind of love that is to shape all that we do and all that we are. This beautiful kind of love is a far cry from the scabby dog of an offering that gets passed off as love these days, isn't it? So often love is just diminished down to being about mere tolerance, about accepting any old rubbish from anyone and never disagreeing with them. The ultimate goal being never to hurt their feelings. Well, that's not loving people. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus ate and drank with big ticket sinners, yes, but he didn't leave them as he found them. Jesus was loving enough to tell people when they were in the wrong. He was loving enough to call them to turn away from it and loving enough to offer them a way out. And now Paul is telling Timothy to be loving enough to call people in Ephesus out when they're in the wrong. Timothy's been urged to stop the false and the fruitless. Our next heading, stop the false and the fruitless. The loving thing for Timothy to do in Ephesus is to tell certain people to shut up. There's two problems with what they're saying, false doctrine and fruitless waffle. First, false doctrine must be silenced. So verse three, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Paul had spent ages in Ephesus, about three years, establishing it as a kind of mission hub for reaching the rest of Asia. It was the most important city in that region, and that meant Paul's mission there met with lots of drama, uh, riots, all sorts. You can read all about it in Acts 19 to 20. It's amazing. But at the end of Acts 20, when Paul is leaving for the last time, he says to the church leaders of the church that's established there now, from Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So be on your guard. Lo and behold, five years later, his prediction has all too predictably come true. Paul mentions doctrine seven times in this letter, so it's a big deal for him. And doctrine just means teaching. So the gospel is a message which includes a set of doctrines, true teachings about Jesus. So certain people are introducing other teaching which is different to the gospel. So promoting and defending the gospel is positively sharing the message of the gospel, yes but it's also about waging war against false teaching that goes against the gospel. Now, my own British culture doesn't like too much negativity, and Australian culture even more so, I reckon. 
I mean, this is a country that calls terrible things a bit ordinary and really bad things average. But if the gospel is true and good and brings life, then alternative doctrine that leads people away from trusting in Jesus must be false, bad and bring death. It must be stopped. It must be silenced. False teachers aren't puppies to be sympathised with. They're savage wolves. Now, sometimes people object and say, look, I love God, not a set of doctrines. And of course, we have a living relationship with a living God. But doctrine is true things that we know about God that lead us to love him. I read this quote by a commentator this week. It says, a virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. In other words, true doctrine is good because it helps us to know God. And the more we know him, the more we love him. Conversely, getting God in his gospel wrong means our love for him will be stunted. So to lots of people who've given up on God, I reckon we could say, tell me about this God you don't believe in, and I'll show you who that, how that's not who we believe in either. False doctrine needs to be silenced, and also fruitless waffle. Uh, from verse 3 again, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, Verse 4, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Myths, myths, they're mentioned five times in the New Testament, never positively. They're always part of a problem. So if you're ever peddled a brand of Christianity that is mysterious and mystical, be very very suspicious. At best it will be a distraction from Jesus and in all likelihood false teaching. Now the call of the gospel is to respond in faith to the solid historical facts, events and teachings of Jesus. The gospel is about what has been made known about God, a mystery revealed, not about what is hidden. The gospel is not allegory pointing us to something else. The gospel is the thing on which to bet our lives. Now, we don't know exactly what these myths and genealogies were all about, but they sound kind of Bible-ish, don't they? Kind of legit. I mean, after all, in our own church, we had a, a sermon before Christmas on Jesus' genealogy. So how do we discern if something is worth our attention or not? Well, by their fruit, what they produce. So verse 4 again. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So ask yourself, does what you're looking into or how you're spending your time and how you're looking into it grow your faith in God or is it just waffle? As our growth groups start up again this year, these are good questions for us to be asking, aren't they, about how we spend our time together. So ask, 
is this helping me to know and love Jesus more? Is this helping us build one another up, hold each other accountable? Is this helping us become more gospel shaped? Or is it just a load of guff that affirms us where we are and makes us feel better about ourselves? Is it advancing God's work of growing us in faith? That's the key. Now notice the error has come subtly. Verse 6. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. Now every so often, it's just worth checking out the old King James translation of the verse. You know, Lazarus, by now he stinketh. James 1 talks about superfluity of naughtiness. Well, this verse here, verse 6, is a great one. Some have turned aside to unto vain jangling. That endless chatter just sounds like jangling keys. Vain jangling, love it. Now, sorry, back to the text. Notice they've departed from the gospel. They've not raged against it. They've wandered away and swerved towards, taken a wrong turn towards meaningless talk or jangling. They've become more interested in the things related to the Bible rather than God's word and Jesus himself. It's subtle, but it's deadly. And that's why Timothy's got to be so ruthless. And the result of all their jangling is that they're arrogant, but ill-informed. Verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So they go on about a lot. They're really sure of what they're on about. But having stopped listening and so drifting from the gospel, they've missed the real point entirely. Lord, please defend me or anybody else who preaches in our church from falling in love with our own voices. Please, Lord, help us always only to point to Jesus, never ourselves. Now I want to ask you, how does your personality make you vulnerable to this kind of wandering from the gospel into meaningless talk? Because I reckon we're all prone to this in some way or other. Maybe you're a details person, and there's nothing wrong with that, and vague people like me really need you. But the danger is we can become so obsessed with studying details that then we neglect the basic, bigger picture of the gospel and drift away. Or maybe you've been hurt by someone in your past and you're determined never to be conned again. So you find it easier to go off on tangents than ever getting around to simply trust in Jesus. Or maybe you're a super confident person, so confident that you forget your need to make the effort to keep sticking close to the gospel. And some of you have described to me as being prone to going down rabbit holes of things that interest you on the internet, things that fascinate you. Now, I'm not telling us we shouldn't have interests or passions or things we enjoy looking into. But I am telling us to make sure that they don't crowd out attending to the basics, sticking with the gospel. I am telling us to be on our guard 
about those distractions shaping us more than Jesus does. Remind yourself of the gospel. Revel in the gospel. Be shaped by the gospel. By Jesus. Back to Ephesus. And these false teachers have become so arrogant and foolish in their meaningless talk that they're teaching the wrong thing about the law, about how Christians should use the Old Testament. So just briefly then, they need correcting to use a gospel-shaped use of the law. A final heading, gospel-shaped use of the law. The false teachers don't know what they're on about with the law, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the law itself, the Old Testament. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And we saw this last week. Jesus hasn't done away with the law, but fulfilled it. He's transformed our hearts to want to obey the law all the more. So the law is a good tool if used properly. You know, a drill is a good tool if it's used properly for the right thing. But it's no good for cleaning your ears out. It seems that the false teachers are doing what human, humanity always ends up doing, drifting towards morality. So being on about keeping rules and requirement, requirements, stuff that you must do to be right with God in your own strength. But Paul is saying in verses 9 to 11 that the gospel purpose for the law is not to distract from the gospel, but rather to help people understand they're in need of the gospel. Understand they're sinners in need of saving. Because the law is in line with the gospel, but the law isn't the gospel. The law can't save us. But the law is good. And the gospel-shaped approach to the law is to let it help us to know God's character and to help us see how far we've gone from good God standards to help us see that we're poor in spirit and so prompt us to turn to Jesus in faith, trusting in him to save us where we can't possibly save ourselves. That's gospel-shaped use of the law. So let's draw things together then to finish. We're to live and to look out for one another shaped by the gospel, shaped by love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And the most loving thing to do is insist on the gospel and keep Jesus the main thing. And that means sometimes the most loving thing to do will be to shut people up if they're teaching something that goes against the gospel, or more likely for us, something that distracts from the gospel, causing us to drift. So I encourage us all, make Jesus your hobby horse. Make Jesus your juicy gossip that you're dying to share. Make Jesus your nerd level obsession that you want to impress people with. Make Jesus the controversy that you always want to chatter about. The Ephesian church needed the apostles' authoritative teaching and needed to get back to the right use of the law to get back to Jesus. And so do we. And we have it in the Bible. So keep returning to God's word to advance his work in you and in others.
And the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith.